We're nearing the end of the story of Joseph's life, and we've been tracking with him through the two, almost actually three or four decades now um, that we've encountered Joseph's story throughout the end of the book of Genesis, and we are jumping ahead now to um, an episode that takes place near, near the very end of Genesis. Now, for those of you who are new, don't know the story, I want to remind you of what's taken place so far in Joseph's life, but I want to tell you, recount the events from the perspective of his father, his aging father, Jacob. Jacob, he was the third after Abraham. So if you know anything about the Christian faith, or indeed about Judaism also, Abraham is considered the father of all who believe. He is the first um, sort of who was the, the ancestor of all the people of God following. And Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob. So Jacob is the, the third of those of the three sort of patriarchs of the Christian faith and of Judaism before that. Jacob married, had four wives. I told you before, this is the question for another day. That day has not yet come. He, married, he had four wives, and through these four women, he had 12 children. But only one of those wives was a marriage of love. It was the marriage to Rachel, the one who he um, had fallen in love with as a, as a worker on his uncle's farm. And Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So of the 12 sons that, that Jacob has, two of them come from his beloved wife, Rachel, and they're the, the youngest, Joseph and Benjamin. And so Jacob favors Joseph. with all, He lavishes him with favoritism and love that, of course, induces this reaction from, his, from the ten older brothers of unbelievable jealousy and envy that really festers into a boiled, boiling hatred for, for Joseph. It comes to the point where they basically plot to kill him, but instead of that, they sell him into slavery. So he's, he's taken by a caravan of traders from what is modern-day Israel, then called Canaan, all the way down across the Red Sea and into the land of Egypt. And he's effectively um, forgotten about, left for dead, as it were. They go back home. They tell their father, oh, he's ripped apart by wild animal. He thinks that Joseph has died. A couple of decades pass, and the grief for the loss of Joseph never leaves his heart. But Jacob, seeing that they're running out of food, they're in the midst of a famine, they've heard news of Egypt and of the fact that Egypt has massive stores of grain because of the wisdom of their prime minister. And so he sends his 10 older sons down to Egypt to go and trade and buy grain and bring back so that they won't starve to death. And a number of things take place and it eventually transpires that this great and wise prime minister down in Egypt is in fact the brother, Joseph, who was sold into slavery. They come back, they tell their father that your son Joseph is alive. And Jacob obviously is overwhelmed with emotion at the news that his son is alive. And he ends up traveling down to Egypt as an old man to go and live in Egypt during, throughout the duration of this famine, which extends on for years. And they end up living there as a people. By now, it's not just him and his 12 sons. It's also then all of their wives and children and grandchildren that results in a great, a great host now. And they end up living in Egypt as a kind of foreign people within this land, take under the protection of Joseph, who's prime minister in Egypt. And as they stay for 17 years, Jacob is now an old man. He's so old, in fact, that he's about to die. And as he's approaching death, 
the custom then was not so much that, you know, I've been at graves, I've been at deathbeds on more than one occasion, and typically you're there to bless the person and, and speak truth to them as they're about to pass uh, away. But on this occasion, the, the way they saw things was in fact the other way around. It was the opportunity for the dying man to bless those around him. And so what happens in Genesis 48 and 49 is he begins to speak these patriarchal blessings over all of his 12 sons, beginning with the son he thought was dead, Joseph. And this is where we pick up the story. I want to read to you from Genesis 48. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. These are two boys who were born to him in Egypt to an Egyptian woman. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, it's another name for Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I'll make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them. And embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand. And laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, 
Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now, this story has an unusual importance in the history of Joseph and of Jacob. And you ask the question, why? It seems like a relatively unimportant incident within the scope of what takes place. But the reason is not just because of anything I particularly have seen in this story, but rather because of what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, where when he's recounting episodes from the great lineage of faith, person after person who lived a life of faith and a life of faithfulness to God, and he recites one after another some of the most amazing moments from their lives. When he gets to Jacob, of all the things that take place in Jacob's life, this is the moment that is highlighted, not just by the author to the Hebrews, but also by God. And he says in Hebrews 11, verse 21, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And the question is, what is it that makes this moment so remarkable? It is the case, isn't it, that when we recount the great deeds of famous people, great people in history, there's usually just one moment, isn't there, in their life that that marks them out. You can think of, you know, if I say the name Rosa Parks to you, what was it that made Rosa Parks great? Why was she considered the first lady of the civil rights movement? The answer is because of her stance in the Montgomery bus boycott when she refused to move seats. That moment defined her for all people through all time. She's the one who sat in her seat. If I say the name Winston Churchill, what is it that defines him? It's his speech, isn't it, to Parliament. We'll fight them on the beaches and all the rest of it. Or if you say the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's famous for many things, being a theologian, a preacher, a writer, an author. But there's one thing that distinguishes him, one thing that people know about him and that marks him out as unique. And it's the fact that he attempted to assassinate Hitler. I think that doesn't sound like the job description of your average pastor, doesn't it? But uh, (laughs) certainly a provocation. Anyway, um, (laughs) very often people are known for one thing that distinguishes them above all. And for whatever reason, this is what I want you to understand. What is it about this moment that distinguishes Jacob? Jacob did many things in his life. And, and most, uh, you know, most remarkably of all, I would say he had these extraordinary encounters with God. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord, if you know the, the story at the, at the brook Jabbok. He had an, an amazing experience of reconciliation with his brother Esau. All these amazing episodes in the life of Jacob. But the one thing that God wants us to pay attention to above all is what happens here in this chapter when he blesses Joseph's sons in the way that he does it. Why? What is it that's so remarkable about this? I think there are a few things that stand out, but I really want to draw your attention to just one of them. But a number of these things, one is obviously that this, this moment marks, in a sense, the pinnacle of his spirituality as a man of God. Jacob had experienced a rough road through his life. He'd, in some ways, wandered away from God. But now, towards the end of his life, he embodies this spirituality and a prophetic spirituality such that he utters these prophetic announcements over all of these boys. And into the next chapter, you can read more of them. There's a spirituality about him which I think distinguishes him, but I don't think that's the most important thing. You could also point to his faith. He'd once been such a doubter that he'd had to trick his way into securing 
the blessing of God. That was what he felt at least. And now we see him as a man so eminently secure in the love and the promise of God that he wants to, that he, he just exudes trust and faith in the living God. And that's certainly an important element about this. But I think the thing above all that seems to me to be the thing which we need to take notice of in this chapter is that Jacob, in his actions here, he seems to embody the very heart and the love of God. And particularly, the way that love is expressed in the gospel and the way that he treats his grandsons here in this chapter. Now, that may not be immediately obvious to you, so I want to take time to explore this. But I must underline this fact, that to understand and comprehend the love of God in your life is the most important thing about you. When Paul was writing his letter to the Ephesians as an example, do you remember how it is that he prays for them? He says he bows his knees before the Father. And he's writing to them at a distance, but he's describing for them the prayer life and the earnestness in the intensity of his prayer on behalf of the Ephesian Christians. What is it that he prays for? He prays that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, if you could understand what is most important, what was at the top of Paul's prayer life, his agenda, when he's thinking about the Christians that he in some way had a responsibility for, he prayed that above all, they would have the ability to grasp what God's love meant for them. I can put that negatively and say this, that all of your failings in life stem from an inability to comprehend the love of God. That where God's love, where you were blind to it or deaf to it or hardened to it or just not aware of it, all of our problems and failings in life stem from our lack of comprehension and ability to, to understand the love of God for us. Or to put it positively, The person who does grasp the love of God in its breadth and depth and height and length in the way that Paul expresses it is a complete person. The Lord Jesus Christ lived all of his life under the great awareness of the Father's love that the Father kept saying over him, Behold, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the love of God was such an, an immediate, unfiltered, unmediated experience for the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived and basked under the love of God. He was the complete man. And there's a sense in which our completion and our maturity in the Christian faith is directly correlated to our ability to grasp the love that the Father has for us. And that's why I think this chapter is so important because it captures elements and aspects and facets of the love of God in a way that is truly extraordinary. I want to show you what they are. Let me show you three things. The first is this. Jacob teaches us that God loves you with a covenant love. A covenant is, of course, a promise or a vow or an unbreakable commitment. God loves you with a covenant love. Now, this had become a defining reality for Jacob himself. Jacob, if you know anything about his story, in his younger years as a young man, and we're talking decades earlier, he'd been something of a scoundrel and a cheat and a liar. 
He had tricked his older brother Esau on two occasions. Once when his brother came home famished and he, and he said, can I eat some of the stew you've just made? And Jacob says, well, I can as long as you promise to give me your, your birthright. And Esau, a little bit thick skulled, a little bit dim, but you know, an aggressive sort of hunter type, he, he makes the trade. He trades a bowl of stew for his birthright and Jacob is the better for it. Much later in life, as their own father Isaac is dying, Isaac sends Esau out to go hunting so he can make him a stew and then he can pronounce a blessing over Esau. Jacob, or his mother actually, overhears this. They they come up with a plot. They plan for Jacob to go and pretend to be Esau in front of the blind old father. He makes a stew. He puts some goat skin on his arms because his older brother was a furry type of man. And he goes to to his father wearing his brother's cloak and he, 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 he's drawn in close, and his father feels the fur on his arms, and he smells his bro- the older brother's cloak, the smelly hunter cloak. And in all this, he's taken in. Isaac is taken in, and he blesses Jacob. And Jacob effectively steals his older brother's birthright and blessing from the old father. He's a scoundrel and a cheat. And it results with him being a fugitive because he has to run away then. His older brother has a murderous intent and Jacob has to flee. He goes hundreds of miles away to go and stay with his uncle Laban for for many, many years. This is the man. And you'd think after a story like that, that he would have considered himself to be somewhat outside the love of God and outside the fellowship of God's people, which was his family. He'd left them long behind. He distanced himself because of his essentially criminal activity. That's what had happened in this man's life. And yet what he had experienced, what was it that changed this man? Why why is it that now we're seeing him in his old age, he's a man of deep spirituality, a man who's walking closely with God? And the answer is, it's not that guilt changed him. Guilt can have an effect on you, and certainly I think he would have felt guilty for the things he'd done as a young man. But guilt haunts you, it doesn't change you. It wasn't fear that changed him either. He certainly felt fear about his older brother Esau. He felt that if he ever saw him again, his brother would kill him. So he lived with that specter of fear hanging over his life. If ever I go home, I'll be killed. But fear didn't change Jacob either. What changed him was the relentless love of God in his life. Now, we see this in how he opens this speech to his son Joseph here as he's dying. How as he begins to speak to him, he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I'll make of you a company of peoples and I'll give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Here's Jacob, an older man, sorry, as a young, yet recalling these events in his youth. And even though he was such an undeserving man, nevertheless, the love of God hung over his life in this relentless, passionate way. What is it about the love of God that is so powerful? And I'll tell you a few things. This covenant love of God is a love that pursues you. Jacob, when he heard from God in this way, had been on the run from his family. And indeed, in that way, also from God. God had encountered him, taken hold of him. Re, reignited and also restated his love over him that he was a child of the promise. 
And this is something like the experience that all of us have had when we've come back into the family of God. You may have been running. It may be the case that you were raised in the faith in some way, and then you spent some years running away from God. God's love, his covenant love over you is a relentless love in that he goes after you and pursues you. Another dimension of this is that this covenant love is a love that shepherds you and keeps you and takes care of you. Jacob says, as he's pronouncing this blessing over the boys, I don't know if you noticed this in verse 15, he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. What he's saying there, of course, is that sheep have a tendency to wander. And he had wandered away from the family of God. He'd wandered away in his shame when he'd hidden from his family. But the shepherd is the one who is responsible. The shepherd is the one who cares for the sheep. The sheep don't care for themselves. The sheep are stupid. This is always the way the Bible talks about our relationship to God and the way that God's covenant love hangs over our lives and protects us and keeps us. This is how Jesus puts it in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That is Christ's ironclad commitment to anyone who is part of his family. If you belong to the the shepherd, you may wander for years, but he is a relentlessly pursuing shepherd who then keeps you within his grip. He will not let anyone be snatched from his hand. You may have feared for your faith and your spirituality and your walk with God. You may have wandered away. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm a shepherd and I never let go of a single sheep, none of them come and escape my grasp. Jacob had experienced this in a very personal, intimate way. He says, the Lord has been my shepherd all my life. That was covenant love that reframed his whole life. And I'll say one last thing about this covenant love. It's a love that has a power to transform you. Here he is as he's reflecting back, and what else does he say about this love of God when he's pronouncing this blessing over these boys? He says this. He says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. What evil is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about his own evil. He's talking about the evil of his own heart that resulted in that murderous feud with his older brother. And as he reflects back on what actually transpired, He looks back on a life in which God turned it all around and he redeemed Jacob from his own wickedness because of the relentless love of God in his life, this covenant love. Now this is an experience that I think anyone who's part of God's family understands. It's true on an earthly level, isn't it? You see a kid who's grown up in a a home with an absence of love and security and affection. Sometimes it takes just one person to change that kid's life. It might be a teacher or a coach or someone outside of that situation who comes alongside and loves them relentlessly, commits themselves to that child. That child, their life can be changed by that experience. And it's the love of God that changes the heart of the Christian. God's love does not give up on us. It's how Paul puts it again in the book of Ephesians, a book I want to refer to a number of times in this. He says that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is what Jacob's testimony was. 
He says, I was a scoundrel, a cheat, a thief. I was dead in my sins. The love of God redeemed me, he says. He redeemed me from all evil. This is the covenant love of God, and it becomes definitive for Jacob's life, so definitive that it's the first thing he wants to talk about as he's about to bless these boys, and it is the content of the blessing that he speaks over them, the covenant love of the living God. That is the love with which God loves you if you're a child of God, if you're part of God's family. The second thing that Jacob shows us about this love of God is it is an adopting love. Now, I want you to consider the situation for a second here, what's happening. Jacob very much understood himself to be in this family line, this lineage of grace. Abraham, his grandfather, had been called by God. That blessing had been transmitted to Isaac, his dad, and now to himself, Jacob. He lived a very self-conscious existence under the love of God and the covenant of God as the most defining thing about him. Of all the people on the face of the earth, Jacob could say, I am a man of the covenant. I'm a man who belongs to the living God. And now these boys are brought in by Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, these two lads Joseph had had in Egypt who met Jacob after they were born, as we all do, I suppose, but had met him after, you know, they weren't, they weren't familiar with their family until they arrived in Egypt. And there are a number of ways in which they were separated from Jacob and the blessings of being part of God's people. They were separated generationally in that they were his grandsons, not his sons. And we know how difficult it can be for faith to transmit from generation to generation. They were separated you know, by, by a generation. They were separated also ethnically in the sense that these boys were not, they didn't just have Joseph as their father, they also had this Egyptian woman as their mother. And she had, was a daughter of a, a high priest of one of the Egyptian gods. So this immediately brought this mixture into the family. These boys were were kind of ethnically mixed. And who knows what their mother had raised them to believe and think about spiritual things. And they were also separated culturally. I think this is the most powerful thing that we have to understand here in terms of what's going on. These boys have been raised as sons of the prime minister in a palace in Egypt. Everything they could ever imagine on a plate in front of them. And then their somewhat rowdy cousins and uncles had arrived, the shepherds from Canaan, and had sort of parked up in Egypt as, you know, living, you know, if you have, if you have relatives you're embarrassed about, this is that kind of situation, the kind of relatives you don't really want to be associated with. Their royalty, effectively, and all their cousins are agricultural farm laborers. The Egyptians already look down upon, and they're living as this rabble in the land of Egypt. And, you know, if you're, if you're in the mind of those boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, which side do you want to identify with and be, be known for? It's, it's not difficult, is it, to understand their minds. They're, they're sons of privilege and wealth and all these kinds of things. Their own father didn't particularly identify with his people. He's dressed as an Egyptian. You know, he's not dressed like one of these shepherds. And so for Jacob to engage in this act where he brings them closer to himself, as it were, he is smashing through all of these boundaries, the boundaries of generational divide, how hard it can be to understand the world of your grandparents, 
the boundaries of ethnic divide and that they saw themselves as, as at least half Egyptian and the boundaries of this cultural divide and that these were the relatives they probably felt embarrassed about. Jacob smashes through all of these obstacles when he commits this great act, when he adopts them as his own sons. And it's there in, in verse 5, this is what happens. He says to Joseph, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. They won't, in other words, have a grandchild's portion of the inheritance. They will be full sons. And not only does he say that, but he also wants them, therefore, to carry the family name. That's what he says in the blessing over them in verse 16. He says, the angels redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Now what's going on here where Jacob pulls them in close, as it were, and, re- and, and renames them in the sense that he wants them to carry the family name? And I tell you, Matthew Henry, I think the great Puritan commentator, I think put it very well when he said this. Listen carefully, he said this. It's as if he had said, let them not succeed their father, Joseph, in his power and grandeur here in Egypt, but let them succeed me in the inheritance of the promise made to Abraham. You see, two different worlds they lived in. They straddled the Egyptian world and the Hebrew world. He says, thus the aged dying patriarch, patriarch teaches these young persons not to look upon Egypt as their home, nor to incorporate themselves with the Egyptians, but to take their lot with the people of God. Jacob will have Ephraim and Manasseh to believe that it is better to be low in the church than high and out of it. It is better to be low and in the church than high and out of it. To be called by the name of poor Jacob than to be called by the name of rich Joseph. I love that. What resonance this has for us as Christians. How Jacob, in a sense, embodies what God does in our lives when he adopts us into his family. It's there in the fact of the adoption itself, which is one of the most potent and important metaphors, or maybe not even a metaphor, a reality of what it means to be part of the family of God, as it's described to us in, in, in the scriptures. In Ephesians 1, it says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to the purpose of his will. You were an outsider, you were estranged from God. You were conscious that you were unworthy, and then God says, you will be part of my family. He adopts you and brings you in. Not only does he adopt you, but then he, he gives you a status as a full-blown son, a child of God. Now, this is something that's emphasized again in Paul's letters in the book of Galatians. It says in Galatians 4 that because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What he's saying there is that just as Ephraim and Manasseh were not lesser inheritors of the promise because they were grandchildren, but become full inheritors and and take a name alongside the other tribal heads of Israel, so also does it work in the life of the Christian. There are no gradients of Christians. There are no tiers of Christians. There are no no Christians who have a special place within the family and then those who are just just in by the skin of their teeth. He says of everyone, if you're a child of God, then you're a son, not a slave. You're an inheritor. 
You have the Spirit of God inside you who cries out, Abba, Father, so that you commune directly with God as your Father. Not as a grandfather, not as a distant relative, but as your Father in heaven. And what this means, of course, is that just as Ephraim and Manasseh were now to transfer their sense of identity from this mixture of being Egyptian and at a distance from the people of God to now being bearers of the name Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, and Jacob. That they were now to understand themselves as full Hebrews. This is exactly what happens in the life of the Christian through the power of adoption. To put that negatively, there are all kinds of things in this world that give you a sense of identity. Be it nationality, be it race. In our day and age also we talk about sexuality. We're aware of wealth, we're aware of poverty, we're aware of all these different things, of achievements, all kinds of ways by which we wear labels and and seek to find our place and our sense of identity in this world. And to be adopted into the family of God is, in one sense, to let all of those things either be discarded or to recede into the background to be of lesser significance and importance and non-definitive to who you are. But to put it positively... When you're adopted into the family of Christ, the name of Christ is written on you, written on your forehead. That just as these boys carried the names of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, and that now defined them, they were full-blown Hebrews. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be adopted into the family is to bear the name of Christ, which is both a motivation and a responsibility. Think about what Paul says in Colossians 3 when he says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It means that a Christian can never do anything except doing it in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, you are a representative of the Lord Jesus. That is a sobering thought. But when the identity, I am a Christ child... I bear the name of Christ. When that reality sinks into your spirit, it transforms the way you live. You carry the name wherever you are. Paul said we are ambassadors for Christ. Which means you can't go on living the way you were living. You can't fight for your earthly rights and identities as though they were equal to your status as a full-blown son of God. You're a Christian, friend. You're adopted into the family. This is now definitive of who you are. This adopting love. And how extraordinary it is that Jacob, in this one act, teaches us about this adopting love of God and the way in which God has brought us into his family as full-blown sons. When I use the word sons, of course, it's a scriptural word. It means it applies to all of us, be you a man or a woman. It's about status, not gendered realities or however you want to describe it. God loves you with an adopting love. Last of all, he loves you with a sovereign and gracious love. A sovereign and gracious love. Now, this is where I need to draw your attention to the very odd thing that Jacob does here. You see, Joseph brings his two boys into the presence of his father, and he, he's aware that his near-blind father needs help to, to be conscious of who's around him and, and, and to position them carefully. So he very carefully brings Manasseh, the older, and puts him... On his left, Jacob's right, next to Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim, the younger, next to his left hand. Because obviously, well, not obviously, because this is not 
our practice, but for them, the, the right hand communicated greater blessing and superiority and status. This is why we talk about Christ being at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he brings Ephraim along the, the left hand. He's going to get a blessing, but it's not as great, it would seem. And Jacob does this odd thing, doesn't he? In that he deliberately, and with a sparkle in those blind eyes, crosses his arms to pray for them like this. Now, we know it's odd because Joseph objects immediately to this taking place. It says, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Maybe he thought his dad was senile. Maybe he thought he was just so blind he had no idea what was going on. It's, it's almost like the awkwardness of that moment when you walk into a shop and you, you talk earnestly to a shopkeeper asking for help only to discover that they're a fellow shopper. You know, he thinks, he thinks I've done it many times. And he thinks his father's just, just, just confused and there's an awkwardness to this moment. You know, he's trying to correct the situation. He, takes his, he physically takes his father's hand and tries to move it across and swap hands so that he's the, the right way around. But this isn't an awkward thing. What actually is going on here is that this is a profound moment in which we're learning about the way the love of God operates. Let me explain this to you. For one thing, it teaches us that the love of God is a very deliberate and conscious thing that's extended to you. You see, this was not a mistake. God is never mistaken in going after you. It was not a mistake by a senile, half-blind old man. Because what does he say to Joseph? His father says, refused. And said, I know, my son, I know. God never makes mistakes. If the circumstances of your life are such that you have come to know God, you've heard the gospel... This is not an accident of your existence. The father went after you, just as Jacob extended his right hand across his body to go after Ephraim. It's symbolic, friends, in a powerful way. God's love is always specific, deliberate, purposeful. He predestined us in love, Paul tells us, before the foundation of the world. He went after you. It also speaks about the fact that it's, it's, it's an action of the Spirit, because what's happening here, you could think that this is Jacob just getting up to his old tricks again. He's the one who stole his older brother's birthright after all, isn't he? You think this is very in keeping that he would do something like this, that mess the whole system up. But it's not that. When he answers Joseph back, he says, he says to them that Manasseh, the older one, will also become a people and he'll also be great, but his young, the younger brother shall be greater. In other words, he, he knows something prophetically and in his spirit about these boys and about their descendants and what will happen to them as tribes. In other words, the Holy Spirit is in this moment leading Jacob in, in the way that he prays for these boys. And of course, that is a defining mark of the way the love of God works in our lives. It is the Spirit who goes in pursuit of you who calls you by name, who regenerates you, who fills you, who becomes the guarantee of your inheritance in Christ. The Spirit of God who testifies with your spirit that you're a child of God so that you cry out, Abba, Father. It is always the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And here's the most important thing I want you to see of what's happening here. This unfairness is not 
a bar gets a feature of the way the love of God works. The love of God is never ours by right. If rights came into it, Jacob should have blessed the older brother with the primary blessing. But rights don't come into this. There's no entitlement within the family of God. If rights came into it, none of us would know God at all. We'd all be outside of God's love and his presence. Rights don't come into it. The way that there is some unfairness, as it would seem, and that this is a sovereign and free thing. This is vital to understanding the love of God. God's love is not constrained by our earthly expectations. God's love is sovereign and free. And he, ha- he answers to no one. He does not explain why he chooses those he chooses. There is no explanation within our understanding. It is the sovereign choice of God. God's love is free and unrestrained. His love is unforced. It is unfair, but it is sovereign. Jacob had been the recipient of that love. God said of him, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. No reason is given for this, except that God is free to love those he chooses to love. And Jacob understood this is the way the sovereign, free love of God works. That's grace, friends. If it had anything to do with rights, it wouldn't be grace. But because it is the sovereign, free Choice of God to go after you just as Jacob crosses his body and puts his hand on the younger. That is the sovereign love of God in your life, friend. And here's one thing, one feature that we see about this love of God all through Scripture. That he often goes for the least likely person. Just as Jacob elevates the younger one here. This is a feature of the love of God all through Scripture. That he goes in pursuit of the weak. He goes in pursuit of the poor. He goes in pursuit of the younger where they lack status. He goes in pursuit of the wicked. He goes in pursuit of those who have discounted themselves time and time again, all the way through Scripture. If there's one thing you have to understand about the love of God, it's this, that he loves the forgotten. That's why you and I can say we had no right to be in this family. But he loved me. When God called you and chose you and loved you, friends, it's as though he crossed his arms. There were others out there who were more worthy and more lovely. He went after you. Jacob understands this in his spirit. It had been true of his own life. And now he preaches to us the way the love of God works in our hearts. Friend, is this love of God definitive for you? Has it dawned on you? Has it settled into your spirit? This is the deepest need of the human heart to understand and comprehend this love. And I want to pray over us that God will enable us to see this. Joel and the musicians will come and lead us in a response of worship now. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh Lord God, There is nothing we could do to make a claim on your love, to position ourselves under the radiance of your love. You came after us. Just as you chased Jacob, Lord, we're aware that you have spoken your love over us even when we were on the run. 
You've given us status as full-blown sons. And your love is sovereign and free. And I pray, Lord, that you will blow away the clouds of doubt. For those here who are children of God and yet whose whole life is overshadowed by doubt and fear. Let them be drawn into the intimacy of knowing the favor of a father who loves them. I pray for those who have been outside of your family, who would not have considered themselves to be Christian, but who even today are aware of this same pursuing God going after them. Lord, bring life to those people's hearts. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us will be able to walk out today with a deeper sense of what sonship means and how it can define our existence from here on. How it looms large over every other thing that, in which we find identity in this life as the most important thing about us. Just as Ephraim and Manasseh left their father's presence that day with a new dignity and a new sense of sonship as Hebrews, I pray, Lord, that we will leave with that sense of dignity as being your children. That you'll let joy dawn in our hearts and a sense of peace and belonging and security with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.